0: The title of our sermon this morning, Conformed to His Image, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So in our recent consideration now of verse 28, over the last couple of weeks, we have been given, as it were, a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, uh, that we might see the glorious work that God does in His providence to execute his decree concerning those whom he has given to the Son. God has a purpose. He has decreed a purpose for his people. And God is at work through his providence to execute that decree concerning those whom he has given to the Son. Verse 28, and this we know take it to the bank, that God works all things together for our good, for the good of those who love God, for the good of those who are the called according to his purpose. We've looked at that verse over a couple of weeks, and listen, it's a a staggering promise, an, an astonishing promise of unimaginable scope and scale. We have, brothers and sisters, we have the absolute assurance of knowing That the one who works all things after the inviolable counsel of his own holy decreed will is working every trial, every difficulty, every pain, every sorrow, even every sin to our ultimate good for the glory of his grace. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. This is the doctrine of God's providence defined in the Heidelberg Catechism as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I really like that. He is inevitably... Inexorably working all things to their determined or decreed end, in all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That commitment of God is proven to us in delivering up his own son for us. His commitment, his ultimate commitment, his unwavering, uncompromising commitment to our good, evidenced in the sending of his own son right? He demonstrates his own love toward us in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. And having delivered him up for us all, how shall not he freely with him give us all things? He certainly will. Amen. He certainly will. That purpose, brothers and sisters, the purpose to which he has called us, the purpose for which he is working all things together for our good, is nothing short of our full conformity with the perfect person of his only begotten Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. A likeness to Jesus Christ in our thinking, praise God, we need it. All right. a likeness to Jesus Christ in our thinking, a likeness to Jesus Christ in our desires, a likeness to Jesus Christ in our affections, a likeness to Jesus Christ in our character, a likeness to Jesus Christ in our will, a likeness to Jesus Christ in our conduct, a likeness to Jesus Christ even at the level of our very bodies, a likeness to our Lord Jesus Christ in all things, so that or for the purpose that Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, would be the head of an innumerable host who, like him, glorify the Father in all things. Paul says, so that he should be the firstborn among many brethren. Sunday nights in Revelation, we see that innumerable host before the throne in Revelation chapter 7, don't we? An innumerable host which no man can number from every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation, worshiping God with palm branches in their hand. And if you can imagine, all of them perfectly conformed into the image of his own son, worshiping without sin, praise God. Worshiping with an informed mind, a renewed mind, after the mind of Christ, worshiping with that heart, worshiping with those affections. It is a glorious thought to be rid of the body of this death and to worship him in earnestness, in truth, amen? In spirit and in truth. Lord, make it so, and come quickly. (laughs) Paul opens this picture for us in verse 29. And the ultimate aim, or that eventual purpose, sits at the end of a process that is referenced in our text. And it's a process that we refer to as the golden chain. The golden chain. The golden chain is a title it's a description used in reference to the order of our salvation, and it's an order that in part comes from our text in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. Now, we've seen that order referenced in our study of Dr. Murray's great book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, in our small groups, where it's referred to by the Latin phrase, the ordo salutis, right? The ordo salutis. That order of salvation is described here in the text by the metaphor of a golden chain. That chain used to illustrate, if you will, or to picture the order of salvation and the unbreakable connectedness of all of its constituent parts. It's an unbreakable chain. One part linked upon or connected to another. many professing Christians today tend to think of salvation as little more than exercising faith or saying, I believe, (laughs) believing in Jesus, followed by the forgiveness of sins. And that's about it. If I walk the aisle, say that prayer, believe in Jesus, I'm forgiven of my sins, that's my salvation, said, done for, right? Biblically, however, biblically, there's much more, much more that happens before and much more that happens after the exercise of our faith that must take place that is necessary for a Christian to be saved. The order of, or the order salutis, the order of salutis pictures all of salvation as a beautiful or a wondrous golden chain of all of God's work spanning not simply the entirety of a person's life, but stretching into eternity itself. It's a sequence, a systematic theology, if you will, a logical, systematic, biblical process of biblical links, each link in the chain, sovereignly decreed by God, sovereignly worked by God, Each link in the chain of work of God necessary to the salvation of the sinner. And so each link in the chain representing a process, if you will. A process once initiated by God in eternity, a process that is inevitable. A process that is inexorable. It is unstoppable. It is an unbreakable chain. Now Paul references that order in our text by mentioning five glorious links in the golden chain. Foreknowledge, these are in verse 29 and 30. Foreknowledge, predestination, the effectual call, justification, and glorification. Verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, it's foreknowledge. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30: Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Five glorious links in the golden chain. And with our glorification, our perfect conformity with the person of his son, that process is complete and God's purpose is accomplished. Right? God's purpose is our perfect conformity with or into the image of his own son. And with our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, that golden process, that golden chain is accomplished, God's purpose is achieved. God, then, having worked all things together for our ultimate and eventual good. Now, Paul opens his explanation of all this in verse 29 with a little conjunction translated for or because. See that at the beginning of verse 29. As we've seen in our consideration of verse 28, all things work together for our good, and now Paul explains why. All things work together for our good. God works all things together for our good, verse 28, because, verse 29, God's purpose is to make us like his son. He is going to work everything together for your good because God's purpose is to make you like his son, and he will not fail in his purpose. So that the Lord Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. The reason that we're conformed into his image is because, brothers and sisters, we will be an innumerable host of those united to him in eternity who praise and worship the Father through him. We are his people, his body, and he is the firstborn among many brothers. He is bringing many sons to glory. Now, it is to this end, or it is for this purpose, that Paul references then the links in the chain. In other words, God's purpose is to conform us into the image of his son, and the golden chain explains how we get there. You see? The golden chain explains how we get there. It is the inviolable accomplishment of God's purpose. God's point in this, or Paul's point in this, really is the unbreakable nature of that chain. Paul's point is the unbreakable nature of it. God's decreed purpose is inviolable. God's purposes and plans will... Come to pass. No one can thwart his hand. No one can say to him, what are you doing? <laughs> right? God's plans will be accomplished. No one can stay his hand. And that leads us then, if you think, follow that train of thought with me, that leads us then to the inevitable conclusion of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What are the these things that Paul is referencing there? I think that Paul is referencing the these things that began in chapter four. That if We are justified by faith alone. And that entirely apart from our works. In other words, if it is all of the grace of God, then Romans chapter four, verse 16, it is sure, it is certain to all the seed of Abraham, whose seed you are if you put faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's certain, it is sure, it absolutely will be done, even though we don't do anything to get it, right? That's the point. How can we be convinced that a justification, a right standing with God is possible through our faith alone. Paul proves it, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and now 8. His point is our assurance of our salvation through what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is an unstoppable plan, an unstoppable purpose. What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, verse 31, who can be against us? The answer to that question, brothers and sisters, is no one and no thing. (laughs) No one and no thing. Now, in our time together on these two verses, I've planned for us to begin by considering God's purpose, right? God's purpose. Then we want to consider the links in the chain that are the means through which that person that purpose is accomplished. So part one, God's purpose, part two, God's process, right? The golden chain. First. We find the purpose of God communicated in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are, brothers and sisters, we're to be conformed into the image or the likeness of his only begotten son. Verse 29, we are predestined to be summorphos. We are predestined to be formed or morphed, to use that word, into the image of his son. We're to be pressed into a mold, as it were. We're to be like Jesus Christ. That's what that means. We're to be like Jesus Christ. The Greek word for image is where we get our English word icon. And it refers to a representation. You know what an icon is in this generation? Uh, Refers to a representation, refers to a likeness that stands for its object. We are to be a likeness that stands for our object. Our object is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be conformed to his likeness. We are predestined by God to bear a likeness to our perfect object. When the wicked Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus in his words with a question about taxes in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus Christ called for a coin. Do you remember that account? Whose image and inscription is this? Whose image? Same word, same word. The coin bore the image, he bore an icon, if you will, of the physical likeness of Caesar. And so the Lord answers, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It bore an image, if you will, of Caesar. Now it's interesting. There is a sense, there is a sense in which you and I will bear a physical likeness to Jesus Christ. Interesting to think about. Inasmuch as our physical bodies are concerned, we're going to have a glorified body that is like his glorified body. And so if you read through the New Testament and you see the Lord Jesus Christ, after he was raised from the dead and he was seen in his glorified body, we'll have a glorified body like unto his glorified body. In that sense, we'll be conformed somewhat into the physical likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this that's that's explained in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verse 47 or throughout that chapter really speaking of our glorified body. Listen to Paul there. Paul says, "The first man, first man was who? Adam was of the earth. Adam was made of dust. The second man, Lord Jesus Christ, right? The second Adam, the last Adam, the great Adam." is the Lord from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, same word, image, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. There will be a sense in which with our glorified body we'll bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, although we'll be given a glorified body like his, the image of the Son of God that we're going to bear goes far beyond mere physicality. I want you to think with me, follow along with me now. I want to give an argument to you or make a case for you, okay? The image of the Son of God that we're going to bear goes far beyond mere physicality. We're told in the opening chapters of Genesis that God created all things. And listen, God created all things in the opening chapters of Genesis just like God says he does in the opening chapters of Genesis. There's nothing left there for us to speculate about how God did that over eons and eons. If God, the all-powerful, omnipotent God, says he created in six literal days darkness and night, darkness and night, darkness and night, then God created in six literal days, okay? So God created man in the opening chapters of Genesis. He created all things, He separated day from night. He separated the waters above from the waters below. He formed the dry land. He filled the earth and the sky and the waters with living creatures. And finally, at the apex of God's creative work, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth, and he filled his nostrils with the breath of life. Of all that God created, there's something really unique, really striking about man himself. In verse 11, there in Genesis chapter 1, the earth brings forth vegetation after its kind. Now think with me. Vegetation after its kind. Grass and herbs according to its kind. Fruits and trees according to its kind. Fish according to their kind. Birds according to their kind. Every living creature according to its kind. Except one. (laughs) In the creation of man, when God makes man, he breaks the pattern. He breaks the pattern. Man is not said to have been made according to his kind. There was no kind for man among those things that God had created. Man doesn't belong to any other kind. Whatever similarities man may share with animals, he is unlike any other created being. Rather, man is made after the image or likeness of God. Man is made in the image or likeness of God. He was created to bear The image of God. We call it the imago Dei, the image of God. That's not a physical image, is it? And why is that? Because God has no form. God is spirit. He has no form. He has no body. He is the invisible God. And so the image of God there that man bears at his creation is obviously reflected in other attributes, other attributes of God that are reflected analogously in man. Man is capable of reason. Praise God. We need to use it more often, but he's capable of reason. <laughs> In that, man bears the image of God. Man is given the responsibility to rule and reign. He is to take possession of the earth. He is to rule it, to subdue it. He bears authority, as God does. Adam was created upright. Adam was created without sin. In that, Adam bears the image of God as a moral image he bears the character of god in himself having been made in the image of god man then was intended to be fruitful and to multiply god gives man the cultural mandate tells them be fruitful and multiply filling the earth with the glory of god as the waters cover the sea that was the intention if you can imagine god's creation the stage on which god would display his glory is the universe the earth A creation filled, as Calvin says, with numberless wonders. And upon this stage, God places the apex of his creation. His creation that magnifies and reflects his own glory. And he puts them on the earth, on that stage, to display his glory. What is man then to do? Man is to take dominion. He's to subdue the earth. He is to rule and reign as God's vice-regent, as his image-bearer, in the way that God himself would rule and reign. And in doing that, man is to cover God's created order, as it were, cover the earth with the glory of God. Image-bearers multiplied across the earth, covering the earth with the glory of God. When Adam sinned, however, that image became tragically defaced. Not Not entirely lost, but marred, severely marred. And God's intention of filling all creation with image bearers who would reflect his glory seemed lost. Well, might as well throw in the towel then. and just destroy the whole thing. It didn't work out like I thought it would. Is that what happened? No, uh, this was not um, plan B. This was plan A all along. Plan A all along. This is the way that God decreed that things would go. And there's a purpose and a reason for that. Why? We're going to be placed into a far better position than Adam ever was. We're going to be placed in a better position. Incidentally, there were to be no attempts to make any other images of God. You're not to make an image of God. It would be gross presumption to attempt... Any representation of our invisible God, any image would be a lying image. Do you see? You can't represent him. He's spirit. He is without form. Any image is a lying image. It's a false representation, a complete misrepresentation, a figment, if you will, of man's fallen imagination. And so the law then says in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. That's the issue. You're not to make any representation of God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter four. Deuteronomy chapter four, and let's look at that under the law. God, in Deuteronomy chapter four, God warns the Israelites... Of the danger of this utter foolishness of imagining, presuming that they could represent God with an image. It's utter foolishness. Not only is it utter foolishness, it's dangerous. <laughs> Don't do it, right? Verse 11, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. God calls them to remember when they were brought to Mount Sinai. He says, You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. In other words, God is not to be trifled with. Verse 12, he he says there, by the way, in the law, that he did that to put the fear of God in them, that they would not sin against him, right? He wanted his fear to be upon them. Verse 12, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Drop down to verse 15 now. Take careful heed to yourselves, because you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Take heed, verse 16, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. They set the egg timer, tick, 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 ding, and they make a golden calf. God's been on the mountain. It seems like Moses has been up there five minutes. Right? It seems like he just went up the mountain, and they're down. It's you see how prone we are to fabricate fictions of our own imagination about God. Take heed to yourselves. Verse twenty three. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. By all those who approach him, God is to be regarded as holy. That word holy, not just practically holy as in separated from sin, but positionally holy. God is entirely other. He is altogether not like you and I. He is not like the things that we imagine in our idol-making heads. He is to be regarded as holy. In Romans chapter 1, text we were in a couple of years ago, uh, to, to make a lying image of God uh, is to change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. I know that was a while ago, but you remember that, that passage, right? It is to worship and serve the creature rather than to worship and serve the creator who is blessed forever, amen. That's why you don't make images. That's why you don't make images. That's why you don't worship with images. When we get to the New Testament, though, it's interesting, isn't it? When we get to the New Testament, we find that God does, in fact, provide an image for himself. We're not to make images, but when we get to the New Testament, God provides one for us. He provides a perfect image, a sufficient image, a great image of himself. That image comes in the person of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ a body you have prepared for me, the psalmist says, right? He makes a body for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to to earth as the perfect express image of God's own person. Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God. Again, we're not talking about physical form. God is spirit. What are we talking about? We'll get there. Hebrews chapter one, verse two. His son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory. Jesus Christ is the radiance of his glory. He is the effulgence. He's the, the beams that... Proceed from the glory of the son, as it were. He is the express image. Literally in the Greek, the word is character. He is the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. John chapter one, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. However, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Awesome, right? The image that God provides of himself is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord, it's not a physical resemblance. God has no form, but it's a a perfect representation of God's own nature, a perfect representation of God's character, a perfect representation of God's mind, a perfect representation of God's holiness, God's justice, God's love, God's righteousness, right? A perfect representation of God. In the person and work and in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see and here not the physical form of god but rather the express or explicit image the exact character if you will of god's holy person and despite adam's fall right what do we have despite adam's fall what do we have despite the marred and defaced image In those who were created after God's image, what do we have? What do we have now? A man. A man who is the exact representation of God's own person. A man who is the exact representation of God's own nature. Where man fails, where Adam fails, Jesus Christ prevails. Do you see? That's an awesome thought. There is a man who shares in flesh and blood with us, who partook of our own flesh and blood, So that we might partake of his divine nature, (laughs) there is a man, a man right now in heaven, who bears an exact representation of the image of God in himself. One of us. One of us. He's our elder brother, and he's already gone before us. He is the firstborn then, you see? The firstborn among many brothers. It won't be through Adam and Eve physically, multiplying, that we see the glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, it will be through the spread of the gospel that God restores the image of himself in man. Through the gospel, through the gospel, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God restores the image of himself in the apex of his creation. And he will restore his image in us by conforming us into the image of his son. That's what it all leads to. That's God's purpose. God intends to restore his image in us by restoring, as it were, us into the image of his only begotten son. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. We are putting on the new man, and it is a new man who is renewed in knowledge. I think that's interesting. Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. The more that we know him, the more that we are conformed to him. Like God has a purpose, right? God has a purpose. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to do and to will according to his good pleasure. You're to work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. And how is it? How is it that God is at work in you? To conform you into the image of his son. Well, God is at work in you through the means that he has appointed. And the primary means, the primary means through which God has appointed that he would conform you into the image of his son by his spirit is the word of God. The spirit of God through the word works to conform you into Christ's image. And it's an image renewed in knowledge. Paul says in Colossians 3.10, the more that we know him, the more that we become like him, the more that we understand him, the more that we meditate on him, the more that we understand his perfect person. And all of that, listen, a a lost person can study their Bible. Lost people do it all the time. You have PhD, seminary educated, ivory tower eggheads sitting in classrooms that have studied the Bible all their lives who don't know a tick about the Lord Jesus Christ right? But they've been studying it all their lives, right? So a lost person can study and a lost person can presume to know something about the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know anything. And why is that? Because it's the spirit of God who applies the word of God to the heart and mind of the Christian. We need our minds renewed, and we don't do that ourselves. The Spirit of God does that in us, does that to us. And our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is planted in the heart and in the mind of a Christian as the Christian takes in God's word, and that word is applied by his Spirit. And the more by his Spirit, through his word, that we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the more like him we become. It's an element, if you will, of that beatific vision, right? When we, when we see Jesus Christ, we become like him, right? When we see Jesus Christ, we become like him. It's a new man. God is forming in us a new man, and that new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We were created anew by who? By God. Lord Jesus Christ through his spirit, Right? That, brothers and sisters, is an infinitely better position than Adam ever enjoyed. Sons of God. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of God's own son. Far better than Adam ever could have imagined. A perfect and complete conformity with his person. And the glory of God will will fill the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And listen, by the grace of God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, applying the benefits of Christ's own work to us, we're no lying image. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. We're no lying image. The more and more and more and more that a Christian is conformed into the image of his own son, the less and less and less of a marred image we become. We're no marred image or no defaced image in glory. We'll be like Christ. (laughs) Right now in our sanctification, he is cleaning off the dross. The great refiner is clearing off our impurity and making us more and more like Christ doesn't always feel that way, does it? When you are embattled over your sin, if you um, spend too much time (laughs) navel-gazing, you're going to be really disappointed with what you find there, right? (laughs) The more that we look inward at ourselves, the more that we see that marred and defaced image. Why? Because the Spirit is enlightening our understanding with what is Christ's image what he looks like, uh, his perfect person, his perfect character, and we see ourselves woefully wanting. So with that, um, we repent of sin, we turn from sin, we ask the Lord's forgiveness, which is right and just that we should do so. We're instructed in God's word to do so, but we look to him. (laughs) Look to him. One of the great encouraging things about this passage, this text of Scripture, is that it is an unbreakable chain. It's an unbreakable chain. If you're in Jesus Christ, it will come to pass. It is more certain than anything because it's based entirely on God's word. It will come to pass. Look to him. Trust him. Believe in him. Walk after him. Pursue him. For, verse 29, whom he foreknew... These he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Christ Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. We know that that conformity to Jesus Christ in part reflects a process that is called sanctification. It's a process in which we are being conformed. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen, we all, brothers and sisters, With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory, just as by a work, if you will, of the Spirit of God. Unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And notice, that's a work of God's spirit. That's a work of God's spirit. God's spirit at work in us, conforming us into what God has predestined us to be. Even and including our own physical body one day. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. We also we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. It's an awesome thought. Why is that? Why? Romans chapter 8 verse 29, because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose of God communicated in Romans 8:29 is nothing short of the radical and complete complete entire transformation of our purpose, of our person with the purpose of conforming us, our inner man, even our lowly bodies, into the perfect image or likeness of God's own Son. Transforming us in our nature, in moral purity, transforming our thinking, our affections, our desires, our heart, our character, our will, and our conduct. We have been predestined to be like Christ. So, Christian, it's true that God has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) It's true of the Christian. It's true of the Christian. God has a plan for your life. What is it? (laughs) That plan is that you would, day by day, be increasingly conformed into the image of his son. You want to know God's will for you? That's God's will for you. God's will, the Bible says, your what? Sanctification your conformity into the image of his son. That's God's plan for you, to be day by day conformed, increasingly conformed into the image of his son. That is the goal or the aim of God working all things together for your good. He works all things together for your good so that you will be increasingly conformed into the image of his own son. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What then? Let me ask you, what then is the goal of your life? What then is your aim? What then is your purpose? I would imagine that if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are no longer your own. You have been bought at a price that your purpose, your aim, your goal would be in perfect conformity with his purpose, his aim, and his goal. In other words, your purpose in life is your sanctification. Do you see? Your purpose, your goal, the goal of the Christian should be your sanctification, your likeness to Jesus Christ, your conformity to his perfect person. To constantly pursue conformity to Christ using all of the means that God has graciously placed at your disposal. His priority should be your priority. Do you see? you should be striving in all things to facilitate that good work. Philippians chapter two, verse 12, the text we just referenced. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God. It doesn't mean we're scared, like some slavish being scared. It's the weight of it, do you see? Who is at work in you? Almighty God, by his spirit. Can you feel the weight of that? God. Um, the story of Martin Luther, uh, before Martin Luther gave his uh, very first mass, they had trained Martin Luther, Martin Luther to administer the mass. And there was a point in time during that administration of the mass where Martin Luther was to call down Jesus Christ, to be sacrificed again on the altar. And Martin Luther, at his very first mass, came to that point in the ceremony when he is about to call down the Lord Jesus Christ, and it struck him the incomprehensible weight of that action in light of who he is, who he was, what he had done, his own sin. Martin Luther, like, rightly so, he ran out of the building, he fled, he couldn't do it. It's the the weight of that. God himself, our living God, omnipotent God, is at work in you to will and to do according to his pleasure. That's why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is at work in you. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. This is our purpose, brothers and sisters. We're to pursue God's purpose in us. And we're to pursue it with great diligence, great effort, great zeal, great love, great gratitude. Is this a a burdensome command? No. Praise God. I praise God. If you're a Christian, you want to be conformed into his image. Please, God, you know, who will rescue me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 2 Peter or second Peter, second Peter, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. There it is again, do you see? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Thank you, Lord. Through, here it is again, the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been, uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these great and precious promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, we're to be partakers of the divine nature. How do we do that? We pursue the means that God has given us uh, by his Spirit. So, verse 5 then, for this very reason, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, they are yours and they are increasing, abounding, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That should be our pursuit. That should be our zealous, diligent pursuit. Paul's purpose when we approach this section of the book is to assure believers, to reassure them, to give them an assurance that their justification by faith alone is secure. And it's secure because all of the work of our salvation is a work of our sovereign God. By his grace, God does all the work. And his decreed purpose for us, brothers and sisters, is unstoppable. Once God has decreed everything, that God has decreed will absolutely come to pass. It is an unbreakable golden chain of grace that is bestowed upon the one who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. through faith alone and Christ alone, that's the means or the instrumentality. God will justify us, God will preserve us, God will sanctify us, conforming us into the image of his son and will ultimately glorify us, making us like him, bringing us all the way home to glory. Amen? And no one and no thing will ever be able to thwart or derail God's saving purpose for us. Here are in Romans chapter 8. It's that thought, it's that argument that then leads us to Paul's conclusion. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God is for you. Having delivered up his own son, he'll freely give you all things. And there is no stopping the work of God that leads inexorably to your glorification. Leave you with this from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now then, may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will. May he make us complete, conformed to the image of his son, working in you, working in me what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this glorious promise. Thank you, Lord, for this glimpse behind the veil, as it were, of your work. A work, as we'll see, that began in eternity and a work that concludes in eternity. A work that concerns your own name, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the good of those whom you've predestined to be conformed into his image. Thank you, Lord, for having for loved us having determined in eternities to set your love upon us. And thank you, Lord, that having determined, decreed to set your love upon us, you work your plan in your providence, through your providence, to bring about the good ends that you have decreed that will eventuate in a redeemed humanity, renewed after the image of the one who created them again, worshiping and praising you in eternity. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that that gives us as we live our Christian lives. That work is unstoppable. It is for us simply to give all diligence to pursue that work, uh, the means that you have appointed, knowing that it's you that work in us according to your own good pleasure and relying upon you to form us, Lord, as we do. Shape us into the image of Christ. May we look more like him as we know him better from your word. And Lord, by your spirit, cause our knowledge to increase. Give us strength as we pursue the means. Help us to value these things, not to take them for granted, not to treat them as a common thing. Lord, but make us into his image for your own glory, for his own name. It's in his name we pray, amen.